Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals and incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Even though their name's Hotel Tonight, you can book in advance for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. It's easy. Book hotels in 10 seconds. It's just three taps and a swipe. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and presented by Major Domo Media. If I sound a little bit different, it's because I'm in the middle of nowhere in the Rocky Mountains with my friends and family, and we are about to go fly fishing, seriously, and I wanted to get this intro to this podcast ready. So forgive if it sounds wonky, but I wanted to introduce the guest for today. Her name is Chef Deep Tran of Good Girl Dinette a fabulous restaurant in Highland Park, Los Angeles, northeastern part of Los Angeles. She has an incredible story. She is incredibly funny, and I admire her and how she operates her business and her life story as to where she came from and how she does what she does today. I got to know Deep really well from the filming of Ugly Delicious, mainly from the stuff that I got edited out. I wish we could make a whole real of her stories. Uh, you can catch some of that on Migrant Kitchen, great documentary about the LA food scene and the immigrant food culture there. And Deep has a, a really great episode with Brian from Cassia. But I'll let Deep do the talking. Thanks for listening and enjoy this podcast. Today, we have as our guest, Deep Tran of Good Girl Dinette in Los Angeles. She's helped out in an episode of Ugly Delicious, and she's been in a few other television programs like Migrant Kitchen. She helped out in uh, Lucky Peach as well. But one reason why I wanted to have Deep on is I thought we we had to edit a lot of stuff down for Ugly Delicious. But so much of the footage that I thought was the the best and most hilarious was uh, was deep, and I uh-huh. wanted to get a lot of her uh, her story today because I think what you do, the food that you stand for, and and your your family and your history is really interesting, and I think a lot of people can learn from it. So, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this. So, for those that don't know, uh, your family is sort of an icon in the Southern California food scene because of a restaurant called Faux 79. Mm-hmm. Yep. And before that happened, could you tell me a little bit about how your family even came here and where you're from originally? Well, I'm a refugee. I came in 1978, but some relatives of mine came in 1975. And um, when you tell people what year you came, it denotes... Uh, I not denotes connotes a certain um, status because usually people who came in 1975 were somehow associated with either the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Vietnam, or some part of like um, a, an American institution. So that may that means that meant that they were educated, spoke English, uh, perhaps uh, upper middle class, 
So kind of like the privileged elite group. So when you say, you, you know, and then you weren't, you weren't a boat person. So after 75, you're pretty much a boat person. I was a boat person. But some of my families came, uh, some of my relatives came in 1975. And my grandmother was, um, she was an entrepreneur, uh, owned a bunch of businesses in Vietnam. And so when she saw the writing on the wall, she uh, sold as much as she could, liquidated, liquidated as much as she, should, she could. And she pretty much bribed people to get fake papers. And so that's how she got a bunch of relatives out. Um, of the, uh, the, um, out of um, Saigon in um, 1975. But some of us stayed back. Um, my dad was um, a, uh, a major in the army and he was a patriot and he said, we're not abandoning our, our country. So um, he wouldn't let my mother uh, leave with uh, me and my siblings, which caused a terrible um, rift between my, him and my, gran- my grandparents. And uh, but right after uh, 1975, right after the fall, when the U.S. left, he was in concentration camp for 13 years. Holy shit. So anyway, so that's why part of us, some of us came on, you know, by plane in 1975. And some of us came as uh, we escaped as boat people. And when you say boat people, you literally got on a boat out of Vietnam. Yeah, like a little. Yeah. I hate to really talk about my boat person experience because I think people just um, they think it defines you. You know, so. Um, but don't you think there's a misunderstanding of it as well? Absolutely. You know, like uh, it, they they want to put you in a box, you know, oh, this is what it means to be a boat person. And, you know, I think people, I mean, there are so many doleful stories about being a refugee. I mean, we could have died. My mother was a boat person and she died at sea from, uh, at sea from starvation and dehydration. You know, she tried to escape after we escaped. We just, like, what would happen is you would try to, like, plan an escape. And uh, what they did, what my my uncles organized one where they would take us in these little fishing boats and they would wait, you know, like a, like a dinghy almost or like a rowboat. And then they would, like, okay, you go from here. They're going to we're going to put a bunch of fish on you so it looks like somebody's just fishing and they would go out and they would like ferry us one by one to this bigger boat and when I mean a bigger boat not really bigger boat like a tow, you know like tiny boat um, like the ones you see in footage you know the footage of uh, you know after the Vietnam uh, right. uh, war but um, so what they the agreement was that we'd do this as long as we could until they found out like if they got suspicious everything was out like whoever left left you know, whoever was hasn't left yet you just, you'll just have to wait another time. We didn't know what was going on. My mom uh, would say, oh, we're just going to go and visit, visit the seaside. And we did it four times before I knew, oh, we're escaping. <laughs> so You were what? Yeah. How old were you when you I figured this out? Five. I was five. So I came here when I was six. We were able to get out and then my mother couldn't. So she waited for another trip and that other excursion wasn't as lucky as ours. So, so she died. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It happened a long time ago. I know, but it's just, um, it's it's really tough to hear or even read about and to have you, you like, I've known this, but like to hear you telling me that, that is like incredibly tough. So I can't imagine. Yeah, I I don't really feel any of it. I mean, that's part of like, because you're a child, it's it's natural to you. You know, in some mm-hmm. ways, it's like you didn't really know know a life that's not like that crazy, you right. know? But um, what really gets me is when I see footage now of refugees and people fleeing and with nothing but what they're holding and their children. Like I, that I, you know, I, I can't feel for myself 
in some ways, but I do, I, it, I feel for those people, you know, at borders trying to get in and does not it, having Does a, it bother yeah. you about uh, humanity that we have not learned from our past? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, yeah, absolutely. Like w- what, what you went through and the fact that I can sense a sense of anger about being boxed in, about uh, being a boat person and the stories and those struggles and your loss, mm-hmm. the fact that you even have to feel like that is not fair, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess um, then you wouldn't get out of bed if— <laughs> Like, well, I'm not going to engage in the world until it's fair. So, uh, so yeah. So, I feel like I compartmentalize but for who, sure. Who, 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 when someone calls you a boat person or that stigma attached to that, who is creating that stigma? It's not really necessarily stigma. I know. I can see in their face that they— But who, whose face is like, what are we talking about? You know, people who aren't boat people, you know? Like the Vietnamese. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some there's some internalized, um, you know, uh, uh, racism within the community. But it's more like when I was younger and like a, a teacher would ask, you know, like, oh, um, who's in your family right now? You know, and and then it would come out like my, my, my dad's in prison, my mother's dead, you know, and they would have this like, oh, this pitiful face, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, I'm not pitiful, you know, like um, and and they would think that I that I'd be like super. um touchy or you know i'm like fucking survivor (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's uh you know so i think it's more like um i'll tell you a story when i was in my 20s i was part of a a woman of color or a woman's poetry project it was a woman of color it was a woman's poetry project and um it was my turn to present a poem and so i um it was my first poem i had presented to the group and they read it and it was just some like regular ass poem about you know, ordinary shit, you know? And uh, they're like, oh, but you know what I really want? I really want your story. <laughs> so fuck you. This is my story. Like, you know, this is what living as a refugee is now. Like, it's, you know, like they expect you to like, like this litany of uh, misery, you know? But when you talk to other refugees, they actually are really resilient and fucking funny, you know? Because that's how you I think deal. You're, I think you're hilarious. I mean, because that's pain. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. but, but you know what I mean? It's not always, it doesn't always present as this like, oh, is this powerless person? You know, it's like, remember that time when all we fucking ate was spam all day and, you know, and we were grateful. Ha <laughs> remember when we were in the Thai refugee camp and then the only time we got food was when like some, you know, helicopter, you know, dropped some like canned peaches. And remember, you know, like it was, it's not, it's not always like, yeah, it's just not well, always such is it, a dirt. Is, is, it, is it a sense that, like, I'll talk about this if I want to talk about this, but don't expect me to talk about this? Yeah, and um, don't think you ha- you understand me right. from this one aspect. It's it's dehumanizing because people are complex people, you know, one experience. And just because you experience one one, one similar experience doesn't mean you, ha- you, t- you have the same takeaway. You know, uh, and I'll reference, like, Ugly Delicious when you interviewed the um, Vietnamese— um, it, um, yeah, the, the, in Palacios, Texas. Shrimper? Yeah, the, yeah, that and, was a, a mind fuck for me. Yeah, but I recognize it. I mean, I I think you captured what a lot of the Vietnamese community thinks and feels. You know, um, but that's not all of you know. No, not everybody comes out with the same um, analysis of what happened. Because I definitely have much more of. A, Empathy, because mm-hmm. I don't think it's sympathy, because I've I've gone through it. A lot of empathy for refugees who are coming in right now, because 
when um, when the U.S. government decided to accept Vietnamese refugees, they were worried that they how refugees were going to assimilate, just like they're worried now how refugees would assimilate right. here and how they would change the fabric of America. But so what they did was their policy was, okay, we're going to like get little clusters of people all over America so that they can assimilate. The, I, the success was to assimilate and blend and erase your ethnicity in a way. So my grandparents were uh, located to Aurora, Colorado. You know, some people were in like, uh, among refugees were in Minnesota. Like, and they're just hoping that you'll be isolated enough that you'll have to, like, you know, uh, is assimilate. Is there still a Vietnamese population in Aurora, Colorado? In Denver. Denver. Yeah, there's a... So you'll, you, when you go in a random place, you, what you think are random places and you see, like, a Hmong population or, or a Vietnamese population, it's totally government. But what happened was, was they... Uh, so Vietnamese people in um, Aurora, Colorado... Heard from friends and uh, who were uh, refugees in Camp Pendleton in California. That's like, hey, the weather is much better here. So <laughs> everybody came. So the U.S. thought we would not. In other words, I think the policy was to not create community. It's just a blend into the neighborhood. Right. And then uh, people cannot be controlled. <laughs> so the Vietnamese people, uh, you know, like my family and my relatives and friends, all came to uh, you know Southern California, and that. It's like, hey, let's. This is much better. Better weather. There's more of us, and so I think the yearning for community is something that cannot be denied, no matter how much you try to deny it. And also, in 1975, it's not. It wasn't very far from when um, the U.S. government thought that Asians in general were unassimilable. You know, there were the unassimilable aliens. I mean, mm. that's why they had the Chinese Exclusion Act because right. you know, they were so afraid that. We were so foreign, you know, we could never be part of America. And look at us now. Right. You know. I think for myself, that's been a hard part to grapple with and to understand. Um, and I think something that I've been unconsciously guilty of myself is assimilation. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was what was so difficult for me to understand uh, initially when I was in Palacios, Texas, and the, the basically the first shrimping family there was— if the KKK is chasing you, yeah, maybe the best thing to do is to assimilate. And I, I was wondering if I grew up there, would I be just like them? Probably. I think so. Um, okay. I think that's—I I don't have any judgment, but my experience is, okay, I grew up in pretty racist, uh, you know, schools. and But uh, I found that uh, instead of— identifying with the white people, right. why don't we cluster with the people of color? <laughs> you know, like, you know, they're not going to make fun of you, you know? So I think it's just a, it, it's it's where you find strength. and Like some people find strength in, in erasing oneself. Right. You know? But, but I think the difference for me, and I can only speak for myself, is that I'm not judging them for the values they now hold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I, before, I think without knowing them, if I read from a newspaper or if it's like a, a news article— I'm immediately casting judgment. Mm-hmm. And what I'm learning through this whole process is not to cast judgment, but to have a conversation and to understand why things are a certain way. Sure. And I think that's as an outsider to the Vietnamese community, I think that's a great perspective. But as a Vietnamese American, I can like <laughs> freaking be as judgmental as I want, you know, because uh, my family, they run a gamut <laughs> the political uh, um, perspectives. So, but yeah, I'm totally completely judgmental with my family. <laughs> um. 
Do you care to talk a little bit about what it was like in Vietnam during the war and then post like right around that time? Because that's something that like when I read books or if there are movies or anything like that's not really covered too much. Well, if you're in Vietnam, you're you're um, you're, the lens is on uh, the white GIs. Correct. Or the Vietnamese prostitute. So what was it like from your perspective and what you know to be a Vietnamese at that time? And for those that don't know American history, can you just explain a little bit about what was going on from when you were born, like the, the, the early 70s, 70 to 75? Um, wow, that's a, that's no, a that's, lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I'm not. A, um, well, I think you get acclimated to war. I think any any child that grows up in a homeland that's in the middle of, of active war, there would just be moments where we're like, oh, that's strange. Like we would, at one point we had a house that was fully furnished and had relatives coming in and out. And then all of a sudden, uh, grandma and grandpa weren't there anymore. Uh, aunts and uncles that we used to know weren't there anymore. Uh, somehow mom has to go to the rice fields to do um, day labor camp. Uh, and then we wake up one day and then the, um, the dining room and chairs were gone. And then we wake up one day and then the, you know, the China cabinet was gone. And then we wake up one day and, uh, you know, the, what, you know, whatever rest of the furniture, like all the furnishings were gone. And then we wake up one day, uh, and then all of a sudden there's a sewing factory (laughs) in the first floor of the house. Can you explain? Yeah. So, yeah. So. That's, I'm mirroring to you exactly like as a child. I, what, wake up one wait, day, wait, wait, things wait, wait. were missing, you know? The, the and, sewing factory, what? what, what, what? Um, so, because after the war, everything was, uh, uh, it was state property. And so the, the house that my grandma left for us was a three-story building. And so my mom sold, eventually sold everything because she didn't have any uh, form of income. And then uh, the, what, whoever the bureaucrat, of the area was, uh, decided that uh, they were going to take over the first floor as a sewing factory. And so that was, it, was, it wasn't her sewing factory. It was just commandeered by by the Vietcong. Wow. Yeah. And we just wake up and no one would explain it to you. And it wasn't like we felt sad about it because— it, It's just what I mean, it was. Who, who the fuck—I mean, like, I was five years old. I didn't fucking care about a China cabinet, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> it had no value to me, you know? Uh, you just knew that, you know, my mom was definitely more anxious when we would go out to like a, like a, a public market, you know, she'd hold us closer, you know, small things. They don't really explain to you what happened. We didn't know that our dad was in prison or it just, he wasn't around. So, yeah. With all of this, uh, hardship food was a, was food always a constant or was it something? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know. I don't know what it, what it is, like what, um, in, you know, is it childhood memory, whatever defining moment. But my whole, my entire family is obsessed with food. Uh, but um, Food was even good during the war? Hell yeah, it was good during the war. Like, okay, I'll tell you the story. My grandpa, um, uh, he, uh, he, he and I made mooncakes together. And uh, it got to a point where he was just too weak. And the mooncakes are pretty kind of strenuous work. And what if, what is a mooncake for those that don't know? Uh, a mooncake is like uh, is a holiday treat you get during the mid autumn moon festival, which is a harvest festival. It's like a a crust. I don't think there's a equivalent like, like maybe like a gingerbready crust, right. kind of like. And it's uh, it there's a uh, it's filled with um, either a mung bean and a salted egg. Sometimes they do this tap gum where you got like lapsung and and sesame seed. I hate that. Like. <laughs> It's, it's very—and it's got rose water in it. It's very 
It's a very strange um, taste for as for me as a kid. But anyway, so you would make this during the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. And uh, this is when you bring out the tea. You kind of invite family over. It's supposed to like be like the largest moon of the year. So Vimeo's people love to sit around, look at the moon and read poetry and stuff during that time. You know, so… Um, Anyway, so he and I, uh, I love doing it. No one else really wanted to because it's kind of strenuous work and boring work. And we would like, we would turn out like 50 of them at a time. Eventually, he just got too ill. So at one, one finally one year, I said, I'm going to make mooncakes by myself and I'll bring you some. And he goes, oh, that's great. So, uh, of course, I had to put my, my spin on it. So I'm like… Oh, I can't source any local uh, precious mung beans, so I'm going to make sweet potato mooncakes. And uh, so I went to the market. I went to my favorite mung farmer. I got the freshest uh, uh, sweet potatoes, and he loves Japanese sweet potatoes. And so instead of mung bean, I did sweet potato. I brought it home. It's beautiful. Like, the glaze is great. And he's, like, remarking. Like, he's super proud. Like, the glaze is nice. That's a good color on it. What did you do? And he's, like, super pleased. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, Grandpa, just take a bite. And he took a bite. And I was like, I was so ready for, like, the clouds to part and a ray of, like, (laughs) paternal love to shine on me. And he got this, like, stink face on. And I was like, what's going on? He goes, what is in here? I said, it's sweet potato. It's your favorite. It's Japanese sweet potato from the best farmer. And he goes, like, why would you do this? I said, you don't have sweet potato in Vietnam. You know, you wouldn't make a sweet potato mooncake in Vietnam. Because we would during war. <laughs> so I was like, oh. so it was like a sign of poverty because rice is harder to grow. But sweet potato is easy to harvest and grow during like turmoil. But for me, my takeaway was, the fuck you made mooncakes during war? Can you imagine? Like, like you just had relocate from the north to the south. And you go, you know what I'm going to do today? I want to make mooncakes. Like, <laughs> the most impractical, you know. But but people, you know, there are people who, like, are obsessed with food. But your want- family was eating well or trying to eat well during the war. Yeah, even if like we only we don't ha- we don't have mung beans, but we have a sweet potato. We will make a mooncake. Like, just never make. Sweet potato mooncakes post-war. Yeah, yeah. Rule of thumb for everyone. Don't fucking do that. Yeah, well, I didn't realize until later (laughs) is that there's this hierarchy of like, if you're super rich, you get sticky rice, white sticky rice. And the lower end of the totem pole, um, if you were like a peasant, uh, this is like during colonial colonial times as well, um, uh, French colonial period, uh, that you would eat like sweet potatoes, millet. You wouldn't eat, you wouldn't get to eat the rice. So to go higher up on the food chain is something about your wealth as well. Wow. You get to Aurora, Colorado, and then you move to essentially Orange County, your family. Mm-hmm. And then what? So my grandma was always, um, she was always making food, always entrepreneurial. So She's just hustling. She started her first business in, when she was 16. She got married when she, she was 16. My grandpa was 18. My grandpa forever was a. Any wealth that we have amassed is due to your grandmother. So she, when she was 16, she wanted to start her own business, like trading rice futures or something. And no one the hell would um, loan to her. Like, you're fucking 16. Like, we're not going to give you money. So she's like totally distraught. She wants to make a living. Grandpa was a lovely man, but not as ambitious as, as, as she was. And so um, one day she goes, okay, we have enough money. Let's start, the, let's start this business. I think she made like Nukmam. She made a whole bunch of stuff, you know, or she like traded Nukmam, you know. And what's Nukmam? Nukmam is a fish sauce. 
and the North is super proud of its fish sauce. And uh, so um, then they started building. He should amass more wealth. One time during the summer, she was, uh, it was super hot. They had been working, you know, she was hustling. Grandma was like, I'm sure she talked in her sleep, you know, like she was just always doing stuff. And um, she's like, oh, we've been working so hard. Let's take a break. Let's just ride up the coast to the central coast. And grandpa goes, okay, sure. And this is like the resort area, you know, where all the kings and the grand ha- um, families lived. And so he's walk- He's driving up. He's like, oh, this is so nice. And um, he's- she's like, oh, let's take a pit stop here. Let's just relax for a little bit, get out of the car. So he goes, okay, sure. And they walk around this like uh, abandoned um, estate. And it's so fucking nice. And he's like, this is this is a nice place. And he feels a little weird because it's not his place. And uh, it's not his home. And he's like, oh, who owns this place? Because, uh, you know, like, we're just, like, walking around it. And, and she said, oh, we own it. I bought it. <laughs> like, <laughs> she would buy his dates and he wouldn't know it. And, like, to his credit, he's like, I love you. You know, <laughs> like, you're great. So, like, my, gran- my grandparents. Just boss. Like, She's yeah. just boss. Yeah. And he had no, he had no, my grandpa had a lot of confidence, but he didn't have any ego. So, yeah, he's like, I love you, woman. Make more money. (laughs) (laughs) So your grandma was an amazing cook, too, on top of being boss lady. She was great. She was great. Yeah. She, she, uh, all the recipes from um, 79 came from her, meaning that she taught my aunts and uncles, too, but mostly aunts and cousins, uh, female cousins, to cook, meaning that she— taught her how to cook? Um, you know, my grandma was— she was just like a freak of nature in some ways. She was one of only two siblings, which is very unusual then. It's because her her mother was widowed when she was 21. My grandma learned the entrepreneurial part from her mother, but um, she, my great-grandma didn't care about cooking. Hmm. And so uh, grandma cared about cooking. And what she would do is um, when she, you know, even when she was like nine, she was in charge of cooking for the family. It was a small family. And so she would go to the market and she learned how to bargain. And because she would save what Sue, like one one penny here and one penny there. And she would save it up and like she would like buy like a tin of condensed milk. And from there, she'd try to make a caramel or she would save up and get an extra filet of like catfish or something. And she would um, experiment. And of course, she had way more failures than she had successes before she knew how to cook. But her mother would always find out that she had wasted food by burning or whatever. Like, you know, if you no one taught you how to make caramel, you're going to fail a bunch of times. But even though it was money that she had made in a way, because she had bargained. Right. One time after, like, she had hit us and we're feeling sorry for ourselves, you know, and she said, if only you knew the beatings I got. And she talked about how she got beat for trying to learn how to cook. And I was like, I'm like 15. I'm like, you are so fucking tough. And you love food so fucking much that great grandma could not beat the beat it out of you. Like, you know, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, if someone beat me for making for like ruining, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I don't really need to like learn anymore. You know, like, but she got beat all the time for wasting food, but she was obsessed. I always, uh, I never understood. I thought all grandmas were this tough. You know, and then when I see like a nice grandma, I don't know how to feel. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to feel like, oh, or I don't respect you. You (laughs) Yeah, there's there's something about like the way her voice was booming, the way she commanded uh, a room, whatever that was. So she was a real chef. (laughs) 
so she so fucking was. <laughs> yeah. And brutal, like a chef, you know, like like a military chef. Yeah. What so the name Fo 79, what did that what does that mean? Um the a number. lot of us well, we came in seventy nine. But there was also uh um restaurants a really famous restaurant in northern vietnam called foot 79 and so it was like an homage and also like, hey but we're you know here we are so that's kind of can you explain uh, why fuzz have like fuzz shops have like crazy number names well the i think for fuzz shops in vietnam foot 79 means you were in like on like the the street or the quadrant 79 so it's like a you know calling yourself like main street okay. bakery or something um and then I think it just caught on, you know, like, oh, you're for 79, we're, uh, we're for 54, which is when the Geneva Convention, whatever right. agreement was, you know, oh, actually, we're for 56. That's when actually the DMZ actually uh, became codified, you know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So, and then it became for 2000. Koreans really love for 2000. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot so, of for 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Koreans are like, I don't want to go with that, the, the year thing. We're going to go futuristic 2000. So, first 79 opens up. Mm-hmm. In what year? Uh, 1982. 1982. And was how, was it, how was it received? Because you're now, that's not a giant Vietnamese population that Orange County now has, right? It's a much large, one of the largest, right? It's Yeah, it's one of the largest. I think San Jose now has uh, surpassed <clears throat> us. There's a rivalry between San Jose and Little Saigon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, who is the real Little Saigon? I say both. I say both. <laughs> um, but yeah, I... Were you like, shit, we got to make like General Tso's chicken and stuff like that? Or you, no. I, or like the people understood it? it no, I, I think um, the community formation, Vietnamese-American community formation does not mirror Chinese-Americans, not, does not mirror Japanese-American uh, community formation in the U.S. So um, uh, definitely for refugees, like we didn't speak English and we did. It wasn't a lot. So we didn't really care to cater to anybody but ourselves. You know, so there wasn't a sense people won't get it. It's more like, oh, what's available to us? What do we like to eat? So there was never a sense of like, we got to cater to white people. Right. You know, I mean, I, I think at the beginning, I'm not sure we even had English. We eventually did. That's you know? crazy. Yeah. I don't, well, you know, I mean, it was 10. So but I don't remember English being spoken anywhere, you know, in the restaurant. But I love how the English translation is completely... Um, tokenizing <laughs> like this English that you see might not really convey anything to you like it's not meant to communicate it's more meant to like hear you know you figure it out but yeah so there was trepidation that um, would people uh, want to spend money outside the home you know and my grandma knew my grandma knew her food was good that was not a problem uh, and she had made um, like an underground a shop in Aurora, Colorado already. With the first pop-up, probably the first pop-up in American history. Well, you know, I don't, but I don't think we're the only refugees. So I think there was all these places in garages in Minnesota, in Boston, in Houston. That'd be a cool know? documentary. True. But yeah, so it, she knew her food was good. That was always there was never a question, but would there be a, uh, in terms of like disposable income enough? What made her pho better than others? She she made it better. You know, she was tinkering with it all the time. Like there's, you know this, right? Where it's not just a recipe. It's not like, oh, then I, I, I know how to make 60 gallons of ramen and I'm done. It's like you tinker with it. You taste it. You're like, oh, 
it's going to take longer today. Or it actually didn't take long as long today, right. you know? So she was always all the You know what I, I really time. believe with this? It's simply confidence. It's like, you know, I'm going to will this to be more delicious than yes. you. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know? She, you know? You know, you would have liked my grandma because she was, she is a, comp- she was a competitive, like. <laughs> I'm not competitive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to make this better than you. Okay. <laughs> But that's yeah. that's what like I, I imagine it's just like and I've seen that and it's confidence and like you're just gonna will it and that sounds so absurd but that's when I read and you I hear about your grandma that's it it's just like I'm gonna make this delicious and nothing's gonna stop me or prevent me from making this as delicious as possible yeah but I don't think she thinks about other people wow I think she thinks about herself like what she wants her I her platonic ideal for. <laughs> And it's in her What brain. do you think that is? I think she fucking loved food and that and and maybe it was because the beatings, you know, like like that she couldn't have it, that she wanted it, you know? And um my grandma, my grandpa thought my grandma was a beauty, but my grandma never thought she was a beauty. And so um her vanity was all in her, her food. Wow. Like, my grandpa was a portly man, but I didn't know that that was not genetics. Like, I had met, he had left all his siblings um, and had not reunited with them for, like, years. And they had all, they eventually, each of them passed away. And how they found out was through airmail. Like, wow. so-and-so died and so-and-so. And so he's just always, anyway, so— the. He's always wanted to like visit the grand, the, his dad's grave in North Vietnam because his dad was like 94 when the partition happened. So his dad's like, I'm not leaving. What? I'm not going to make this trip. I, I have sandals, you know, like, <laughs> not doing this. Uh, and uh, so um, he had one final um, living relative and he was finally able to make it here after like 20 years Holy hell. of separation. And when I saw him, I said, Grandpa, your, your, your brother is so skinny he goes and he goes yeah that's the rest of the family like, oh this is grandma this is all grandma and grandma was portly you know like your your Santa Claus kind of grandpa you know so yeah so she definitely she was like a hard woman she didn't really show love very well well, actually, let me to be fair. She didn't show me love very well in the way I needed it was that stereotypical it, you know? of Asian parents and grandparents uh he, I, I thought so until I met other Vietnamese women who were way maternal in in like, like I my sister in law's mom is super nice and she's a granny and you know she's like not homophobic and you know it's like affirming you you know and all that stuff. My grandma was you know she, grandma had her own I think she had her own trauma with right. like being uh, not having a father being you know having to care of the family so young she just had to be tough and that's and because of that she's just tough all around but um, she was very but in terms of food she loved you through that wow. You know, but that's only, I think that's only safe, her safe way of like expressing it. I think the same thing in my family for sure. Your grandma too, your, 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 um. She would make me eat weird shit that I remember. I I actually blocked it out. I think it was a (laughs) lot of potatoes. Well, it's wartime food. Yeah, a lot of potatoes. Like she would force me to eat potatoes and my other grandma would just make like, she would make potatoes with butter and sugar. The other grandma would just make me potatoes. <laughs> I love it. I really love that grandma, by the way. I recognize it. I see you, grandma. I love you. <laughs> um, but I'm so fascinated by what this platonic ideal of pho and obviously well, the she's menu- from the north too. 
The North, we know. That's, I mean, come on. Food's supposed to be better in the North. No, no. Pho originated in the North. So it's like, you know, it's like some sort of regional so give, pride give, too. Give us the history a little bit about pho. Quick, oh quick one minute. Well, pho originated from the North. Andrea Nguyen in her book, uh, The Pho Cookbook. Great. She's a great cookbook author, by the way. Yes. So if you want to know more, she's written several great books too, at least, right? She's like four, four, four. or five now. They're all fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't, I wouldn't do justice, but Andrea has done a lot of research on pho, and she was able to pinpoint um, a, a, a French colonial imperialist bureaucrat who commissioned engravings of like Vietnamese life, and one of it was um, a, a cart, and it was a, a cart. It was written in old Vietnamese, which is um, Chinese characters, and she read, uh, she knows Chinese characters enough to know that that says fun. So that's like the pho noodles. And then I think it said like buffalo or something. So you can trace it all the way back to, you know, French colonial um, rule. And then at some point, you know, they changed from buffalo to, to beef. So. And there's a lot of French influence in that soup. I hate saying that. No, there no, isn't. You're not I mean, that? Uh, would you say that? Like, is there a lot? The, okay. There's a uh, Chinese influence in Japanese ramen, is there not? But Correct. But you wouldn't like. Come on, give it its no, due. You know I, what I mean? No, no, I'm not trying to take away. But I do I'm believe. A <laughs> I know nothing. I, but I feel that like pho is so distinctly different than any other noodle soup in Asia. I think China, some some part of southern China tastes like that too. But that's southern China because it's like tropical. Okay. And you, especially like close to the Yunnanese border mm -hmm, area, mm -hmm. that's like. That's not Chinese food either. That's like uh, what? I mean, like, that, okay, that's like you saying <laughs> war. People, people eat well in war. Yeah, uh, strike that from the strike, strike that from the record, please. You know, if you get the, to edit that, yeah. I get to edit my stuff. <laughs> please. But but what I mean is like, there's nothing as herbaceous and and I mean balanced in a way that no other soup is. But you know, but then I I think you're thinking about Southern pho. Northern pho is. Regular as fuck. <laughs> There's like just beefy. Yes, and aromaticy, you know. But no, like you're lucky to get cilantro in there. You know, like, but the aromatics too. That's what I mean by like herbaceous. I meant okay. aromatics and herbaceous. Like I'm conflating the two, but I'm simply stating that that still to me is different. You can still get, I think, um, the aromatics in some Chinese soups, but it's a different kind of aromatic, right? But, Lao, but there's Lao food, Cambodian food, Khmer food that also has those, you know, uh, the the cinnamon, the this, you know, like, I, I I think if you try to, I don't think Vietnam is a silo. It is, it's like, it's, it's so you the wanna, borders are porous. So I think, yeah. you want to say that fuck the French basically? Yeah, yes. I mean, just okay, sure. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like saying, oh, you know, Italians aren't like forever grateful to the Chinese, which they should be, but you know, they're not. So you know, so so you know, how like much French how much did France have to do with Vietnamese food? Oh, you know, I feel like I feel like you should have like Erica J. Peters, who's no, like no, no, no. I, I love this. I love I love the I love the highly opinionated <laughs> version and, and, better and, and, and completely yeah. uneducated. Yes, uh, that's that's the world we live in now. Just give uh, me your 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 hot take. <laughs> yes, hot take, no substance. <laughs> um, of course, like you know, bread, but like we just transformed. I think um, that's you, just for me. I I, I swear mm -hmm. to fucking god, mm -hmm. I was telling my wife this that if I was cooking something else all over again, if I could pour myself into a cuisine, it would be Vietnamese food. Because okay. 
it's so different throughout the region. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. so complex. And I don't know of any other food in that area that has so many different flavors and textures. But I would say that's because you don't know the other uh, region but as much. Because I think if you go to Laos, you see all the different Laos, regions. I'm going to add Laos to that area. But okay. like, <laughs> Wait, uh, two different countries, <laughs> yeah. two different cultures. But, 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 but I don't know Laos that well. Yes. But for me, Vietnam, and I would two different cultures, but that area as a whole— because, and you know, Vietnam is actually really not that unified in terms of ethnicity. Right. There's so many tribal uh, um, groups in there. There's ethnic Hmong in there. There's the white Hmong, it's the so black diff- Hmong. I yeah. just think it's so distinctly different, though, in terms of— Because I think it's the, coastal. We, yeah. we're, we're the, you know, like what's different in Laos and Cambodia is that we have more of a coast. I think it's, I think it's a terrain, you know? And then you can have so many, you have all this, like the, you know, how Vietnam's shaped like an S. So you have all this coast to like Miknuk Mum and harvest and all that stuff. And then even though it's one country, it's like, it gets really cold in the north. It's like unbearable in the south, <laughs> you know? So I know a bunch of um, Lao people who are really trying to um, raise a profile of Lao food and like the awareness of it. And I think um, there's an, you know, there's been an, um, more awareness of Vietnamese food, so we get we get to see the the depth of the cuisine. But twenty years ago, you went you probably would have thought the same, and you would have thought that China was like much more interesting. Not to say it's not. not to- <laughs> I, I love the patriotism. I know I need to learn a lot more about Lao food. So no hate mail, please. <laughs> uh, well, there is a guy in LA that makes his own um, unfiltered fish sauce in, in his garage. I don't want to—that's going to smell gnarly. Oh, but it's so good. You don't, you don't like, like, papaya salad with um, unfiltered fish sauce? But have you—like, having made fish sauce? And, like, yeah. that, that is, like, so— Well, you're like, not going to the garage with him. You no, just I want, that's the thing. I want to go to the garage <laughs> oh, with him. I like, okay. I can't imagine. No, I'm just going to go. Can you give me—can you decant some for me? <laughs> I, I, my uncle made uh, fish sauce with crab in Vietnam, and I was, like, so intrigued by it. And I said, oh, please show me. Just please show me. And, uh, and he goes, no, just uh, your neighbor's going to hate you. And I go, well, I live with a bunch of immigrants. Who cares? He goes, it's not just your neighborhood. It's got to travel. <laughs> and he refused. And then, and then he died. And then I was like, oh. I mean, he almost gave me the recipe, but just di- didn't You commit. tasted this. Was it amazing? I never got to taste it either. Did people talk about how amazing it was? Yes. Yes. His siblings. Like, yeah, he, he makes good fish sauce. I'm like, God damn. <laughs> like, can you imagine like, North Carolina blue crab fish sauce. Why not? I know, but I don't know how to make it. <laughs> Let's you know. do it. Will you, will you go to Vietnam with me? Okay. Before we go on with Deep Tran, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. Don't be just a fantasy football commissioner. Rule as Yahoo Fantasy Football Commissioner. No joke, Yahoo is the number one fantasy platform for commissioners on the planet. I've been using it myself since, I don't remember, like early 2000, and it's gotten better every year. They spent the offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, and a buttery smooth app experience all in the name of your squad coming together and owning this season. And when the season is over as commissioner, you get to pick the punishments. That's right. You're the commissioner. You make the rules. You run the league. I love being the commissioner. So what do you say? It's time for you to rule. Start your league now at yahoo.com slash Dave Chang Fantasy Football. That's yahoo.com slash Dave Chang Fantasy Football. 
And now back to my conversation with Deep Tran. So, Foe 79, I feel like we could talk forever. Foe 79 is a success. Yeah, I, just, I, I believe it's an institution. And, and, yeah. and you have, it, it expanded. Um, it, at <clears> one point, it had five, but everybody's retired, so now there's one, you know. And who's running that now? My, my cousins, who are pretty old, too, you know? Like, Why didn't you stay in Orange County? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, Orange County and I don't see eye to eye, you know? Why is that? Uh, I don't really like the suburbs, number one. Um, I think sometimes you, you, you just have to leave home. Like, all of Orange County feels like home to me in a way that doesn't feel great, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I used to remember going home to visit my grandparents, and I would just, like, not ha- have any will to do anything. I have no, no motivation. And I feel, I believe that to cook good food uh, and have the potential of cooking great food is you have to love the people you cook for and have an understanding and love for community, uh, neighborhood. And um, it's just, uh, Orange County doesn't, you know, it's architecture, whatever. It just doesn't, really throw me you know oh, don't hate me orange county don't hate me <laughs> she, that's funny like uh, she's wearing a t-shirt right now that says uh, i hate orange <laughs> county uh but you know it's like you know like some uh professors they say never uh take a teaching job at the place you got your phd because you will never, be never s- happen to me <laughs> because you would never be seen as an adult right you know, because your mentors who, who helped you through your 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 distress over your dissertation will always know, you know, will see you as a, a, a neophyte all the time. And I feel like if I go to Orange County, I'm never, you know, I, I'm just not seen as a, like, a, an, an adult. Which, it was just fine, you know, but not as a working thing. But it was offered to you to, to run. A to run one of them, yeah. The how did that conversation go when you're like, mm, No. Well, you know, um, my family, my relatives and I, you know, we don't talk all the time. We hardly talk at all. You know, it's like, I'm queer. They didn't have, they had issues with that. You know, and I'm just like, I don't really. How, how, how was that? I mean, like. It was not, shitty. <laughs> that was, could have been phrased better, Dave. Uh, <laughs> it was great. Like, like food, <laughs> like food during wartime. It was great. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean. Because uh, they, that's something in Asian culture, just not talked about see i i'm pushed back on that because that's what they that was their um that was, that was that. my relatives um um argument was that you know there were no gays in vietnam all this other stuff and um when i'm I, not gonna say no but like it was repressed to the point where no one spoke about it yes yes so i mean it's in 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 that way it mirrors american society where gays are ostracized here too have our second uh class citizens here um but my you know they they were hard they're hardcore catholic too my family i'm sorry they, I, I know right like uh they're they're so hardcore you know like um in the late 80s, uh, Pope John Paul II canonized 113 Vietnamese saints. These were all martyrs. And these these people had been martyrs forever, but they just weren't acknowledged. And Pope John Paul II, I think in a very cynical but smart move to more democratize Catholicism or the Catholic Church, canonized all these uh, saints of color. These people called became saints. Anyway, so— my grandparents come from the, that, those villages, those um, uh, Catholic strongholds. Like, Vietnam is about, like, maybe 80% Confucian and 20% whatever. 
these uh, villages that we're part of. It's not even a village. It's a hamlet. These hamlets were 80% Catholic. So it's not just religion. It's culture. It's pride. It's generational. So when when they found out I was queer, there was... It was, what age did you did you tell them? I was 19, 20, uh-huh. when we was 20. It was uh, fucked up. Like, so uh, I'm talking on the phone with some white guy, a friend of mine, and my sister goes, and I hear my grandma. I was visiting for the weekend, and I hear my grandma just getting pissed. I'm like, oh, I got to go. And my grandma's probably pissed. I'm talking to a guy. And uh, and so my, I'm, and she said, deep, come here. And so I'm walking towards her. She's on the couch. And my sister's walking away from me. Like walking away from my grandma, walking towards me. And like, I, she gives me like 30 seconds of deny everything, deny everything. She knows. <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, and then 30 seconds later, I'm in front of her. And she's like, uh, I, I heard, and this is all in Vietnamese too. So it's, you know, like when your parents shout at you in yeah. Vietnamese, in, in Korean, it's, it cuts you, right? It yeah. cuts you to like, like, like your marrow, right? In Vietnamese, she said, I heard something terrifying and abominable. Wow. <laughs> like abominable in the in the biblical sense. Like in like a like a plague. <laughs> I heard that you caught the gay disease. And I was like, ah. and I said, well, and I just I I I'm never a good liar. So I'm like, do you want the truth, grandma? Goes, of course I want the fucking truth. And I said, yeah, you know, and She's like, we got to wash our clothes now. You probably have AIDS. You know, just, she was just, she cried then, but she she only angry cried. You know, she right. cried out of like, I'm sad. And we're like, I'm so fucking pissed at you. I could kill you. Kind of. And, uh, and I, I already knew. I mean, I, I wasn't ashamed of it. I had come out to some certain uh, family members. I said, I'm not ashamed of it, but I'd prefer not to tell grandma right now. They're not ready. And uh, I was in school too, so I'm like, if I ever get in, got in trouble in terms of finances, I'd like to be able to go back home. <laughs> you know, uh, that didn't happen anymore. But uh, she was so angry. She, I, had, I left that night, and um, uh, my grandpa, he didn't object to it, but he just uh, he just turned his back on me, and because I was the the Catholicism was so strong, and. Uh, and another aunt called me and she said, the only good thing I could tell your grandma is that you will be dead soon. What? And I'm like, she conflated AIDS with being queer and, you know, but, um, yeah, so that was, I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, namaste, <laughs> you know, and, you know, so anyway, so my, that's, that's my relationship with my family. You know, it's just, uh, they're just, they are who they are. I am who I am. Did it ever, is it? Is it uh, tenable now? Is it something that? No, got- it's it's not it's not antagonistic now. Right. You know, I'm like I'm sure somebody else in my family has come out. You know, because I refuse like in a family of 150 people. Right. I'm the only one like that. Those numbers are, don't match up. But um. Uh. But yeah. So I I I, I don't talk to him a lot. But this is when I was trying to open my first my good girl dinette. And, and good girl dinette. When did you get into cooking yourself? Although you had worked in restaurants at Flo Seventy Nine probably mm-hmm. your entire life. Um, I didn't. I didn't get into restaurants until um, really until t- I started my own restaurant. Really, I mean, I I what worked you, as a cook for a little bit just to get back in the game. What were you, you doing know? out like after college? After college, I worked in uh, in uh, social justice for ten years. So I wanted to create uh, like ch- change in my community, and I saw. 
1992's um, L.A., you know, some people call it an uprising. Some people call it a riot. Uh, it really impacted me in terms of seeing the relationship be- uh, with um, race, poverty, immigrants, all that stuff. It all came to a head. And I think that moment defined a lot of—helps crystallize for a lot of Asian Americans— what they felt like their role would be in the community. Would it be to just get a job and, you know, not rock the boat? Or would it be to actually create social change, create dialogue, to create solidarity among people of color, you know? So anyway, that's kind of where the route I took, you know. So 10 years, social justice, mm-hmm. and then you're like, fuck it, I'm going to open up a restaurant. I graduated from college. I wanted to I wanted to devote 10 years to nonprofit, to, to social justice. And I said to myself, in 10 years, I'll open a restaurant. And I did. That's amazing. I mean, who, 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 like, who carries out a plan that they made when they were, what was that, 22? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I want to do this. And I remember it was seven years into me being in nonprofit. I said, it's about to go 10 years soon. So I got it. So I took a, bit, a woman of uh, color uh, business uh, course, planned out my plan and all that stuff. Yeah. And, what was the behind the name? Did you know the name Good Girl Donette? Because it's such a good name. You know, I didn't want to do a fall seventy nine or a fall, or I didn't want to do anything tropical. I didn't. I didn't want to. I felt really confined by what people thought I should name. It should be. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, you know, you you don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to be Jade Garden or whatever. No shades of Jade Garden. You know, I just didn't want to have. But, all but this. it is shades of Jade Garden. I mean, I understand. Like, I, I, was, I don't like that because I'm not shaming. It's, it's just, not, but like, you don't want to be typecast as a, it's got to be this. You yes. want to be you. And that's what I mean by throwing yes. shade. It's like. Shade of the, to us having to fit that. Exactly. Mold, not shade of the people who had to do it to survive. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, I have, I have deep compassion and, and deep understanding of uh, immigrant small business uh, uh, travails as I am going through them myself. <laughs> you know, so I wanted a, a name that was as specific as I felt my food was going to be. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, so I just, I, I, I pretty much put butcher paper on my, on the walls of my house and, or my apartment. And I just wrote down words I loved. And I just kind of went from there and, uh, I wanted something that had like an emotional, I didn't want anything con- conceptual, you know, like at the time people were doing so many concept names, you know, um, that it just, it didn't feel like it had any heart. And uh, I don't know, I just. It feels good. Yeah, it does. And quite you frankly, know? your restaurant feels good. Oh. And you said you wanted a sense of community. Mm-hmm. I feel like your restaurant is community. Yeah. It really I, is. Yeah. Like, like there's so many locals. It's there. It's where people can. The lunch crowds not so different than the dinner crowd, yeah, right. And like that, that, that might seem like a weird thing to someone that's not in the business. But if you're in a place where the lunch crowd is very similar to the dinner crowd, like that's community place to me. That's got yeah. that vibe. Yeah, I've always wanted. Like, my ambition was always a, a neighborhood spot, you know, like and and a, a neighborhood that and a, a restaurant that reflected that community. Like I chose Highland Park because it's a dynamic, dynamic community. It's actually a, has. A, a deep history of dyke culture, you know, a deep history of like. Um, I had no idea. Yeah, uh, I mean, di- so dykes it, abound in, in Highland, Highland Park. Park. Yeah. So I'm 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 new. So Highland Park for for those that are not familiar with LA is where in Los Angeles. Highland Park is in Northeast Los Angeles, and it's like it's no it's it's got this long history of uh, you know leftist politics, um, art. Uh, the um, Chicano mural movements, all that stuff is in there. And then 
in that history, a bunch of dykes as well. It's just like, it's all in, it's working class, you know, um, it was like, that's not my community. So I wanted that. But I knew, you know, like, it's always hard because I, I try to have sustainable ingredients. I pay people above minimum wage. But I also want to keep the prices um, attainable. Like all those stuff, the, all that stuff. Sometimes I, I think I don't achieve all of it. Like I think I created um, a format that's. Uh, is going to uh, leave me penniless, <laughs> you know? Welcome like, to the restaurant business. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, I feel like in the end, if I if I go under, I, I feel I feel very proud that I haven't cheated anybody of their wages. I feel very proud that, you know, I did right by them, you know? And uh, I'll just have to owe my friends for the rest of my life and get, you know, an office job to pay back. But, uh, I feel okay with that. I feel like it can work. And I, it's, I mean, it is working. It's like, we're almost 10 years That's amazing. into it, you know, but it's a labor of love. And, um, yeah. And, and when the pho tastes right, and I was like, yeah, grandma's going to love this. It's, it's, it's enough of a high for me to well, keep me going. Well, with Good Girl Dine at the menu, it is, I don't even know how to describe it. And that's like what I love about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's not just Vietnamese. It's not just American. It's not just Californian and market produce. It's like it's your interp- it's your version of everything. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I before I met you, I knew your menu. Uh, I remember my friend Alice had visited New York, and Momofuga just opened, and um, I was just thinking about my menu, and you know, like I got really. I got really resentful having to think to have to translate some some of the menu items. And they, what if there's no translation? Right. Because it's a thing that doesn't exist in this form yet. Alice, she knew me well enough to take home a menu and she didn't say anything. She said, take a look at this menu. And I swear to you, I went to like a place that she did not, you know, like, like no, like, I was like, what is this fucking menu? The fact that it didn't have any translation. I was like, that was such a fucking gift. Like, no translation. I don't fucking how to translate bullshit. Like, that That was like, yeah. So if you see, I mean, I think Momofuku's definitely, like, helped me figure out, like, I don't fucking need to translate anything. And that's- That, like, warms my heart to, to hear that because that's something I struggle with being Korean-American, not fitting with American people, not fitting with Korean people. It was like, fuck it. Yeah. I'm going to, and you know what? I Some shit I just made up. You know, mm-hmm. like roasted rice cakes. I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm just going to do what I feel like means something to me. And that's what I felt like in your menu. And like, you know, what's interesting is some, I would order something. I ordered something. I can't remember what it was, but like three of the many things, like three dishes weren't even what I thought they were going to be. I know. Yeah. And that is awesome to me. I know. I know. But you're the rarity because you people get very upset. Well, but that's fine. <laughs> Fuck them. You know what I mean? Well, because my bread and butter. <laughs> no. Like, I love that because it means like, oh, that's n- I'm I'm not right. You know what I mean? This is her yeah, version yeah. of something. And I want that's why I'm eating your food is because mm-hmm. I want to know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I could notice I was like, oh, she's not saying anything is a certain thing. And I yeah. feel like there's a giant streak of independence in your menu. But I think that's how Asian Ameri- that, that's how Asian Americans are. I think we don't fit anywhere, you know, and and we don't have to like that. I think 
I feel like I just wanted a restaurant and a menu that reflected how what being Asian American is in the U.S. Was you don't have to have a template for you don't have to translate yourself to anybody. You just are who you are, and you just draw the people who 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 um, feel affirmed by that because right. that, that's what the me- your menu did. You know, it's like it, seriously, I was like. Who is this David Chang? He's a, what the fuck, man? Like, you know, like when I started cussing and like, I don't, I don't think I paid attention to Alice for like an hour. I'm like, this menu, what is this, this? What is this menu? Like, I, yeah, it was on my refrigerator. Just like, this is a fucking great menu. I fucking got it. You know, I went to New York for the first time. I ate. I think I ordered for like six people for myself because no one wanted to join me. I think my staff was like, you know. Okay, crazy person, you know, but I was just like, I had to go and fucking eat everything here. I don't care. I I gained, I think I gained 15 pounds after <laughs> five days, you know, but yeah. So I, for your, your menu reflected my experience, you know? And so I feel like, you know, that's, and it, 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 it broke apart some stuff. Cause like, I didn't really question why I, um, I had to have a translation. I was just struggling with the translation. Right. You know, and here's somebody saying, what translation? Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. That was the whole thing. Fuck it. Yeah. And and it, it, I think it, but, it helps you. It does help you. But do you feel like, you know what is the most biting to me in terms of criticism is when Asian people, not just Korean people, Taiwanese or anyone, Japanese, mm-hmm. they're like, no, that's, that's not it. You know what I mean? Like Gubao or whatever the Taiwanese yeah. call it. I had never been to Taiwan. I had no fucking idea mm-hmm. that it's like, it's a steamed bun. That's what it is to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to disrespect anyone. But that was uh, yeah. like the pushback where people are like, no, no, no. You got to put it back into a box now. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, now I'm now but you, more you know, pissed off. But you know why I think that's the case? Because I think people think you're that the only opportunity for representation is through you. Right. You know, and I think you get all, like, you know, purple yam. I, does it still exist in New it, York? It does. I, I, I love purple. I, I hadn't been back in New York for a long time, but uh, I remember going there with some friends of mine, fucking loving the bago on fried rice. Like, I love the confidence of putting shrimp paste and fried rice. Like, I fucking, uh, you know, like, I like, I bow down to like that kind of like, I don't have that confidence. Like, my brother and I used to like, yeah, we're going to make this shrimp paste uh, mint pork thing. And we just, <laughs> He gonna die, you know. Like I, I know my audience enough, but she was so confident to do that. But we were next to a bunch of like four uh, Filipina aunties, and they're just like, you know. I was like, God, don't hate your people. Like I think we're just so harsh because. Uh, I I, rem- I remember I remember feeling that way when I was in college when I would, uh, I would learn of like a Vietnamese American book that came out. And I, the first thing I say, don't fuck this up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's so internalized, you know? So I feel like even though you're not Taiwanese, it's like internalization of like this white lens of how we should be. And like people, we need our people to be rep- represented well. Do you still feel that way about I books do. that come out? I do. I, no, no, I don't. No, I don't. Actually, I'm just like, you know, I'm like, don't internalize that shit, girl. You know, don't I? White men are mediocre all the time. They get so much play. So you know, yeah. So I feel I I don't have that um, response anymore. But I've also trained myself since college. Just like, don't be that dick. I feel like for me, like I want to foster, but I don't have to love everything. One of my friends told me recently, and she's in the business, and this is just threw me for a loop. And in terms of perspective about white mediocre men, so many of them. I will not shut the fuck up about 
equality in this business until I find a average, mediocre female chef that gets the accolades that you guys do. Thank you. And Thank I was you. like, fuck. Yeah. It took me like a day to process. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, she's like, there's so many. Like how you have to be extraordinary to be a female chef to get any of the recognition, right? Yes, extraordinary. But how many dudes that are not nearly as good as they need to be get play? Yeah, yeah. and I didn't think of it that way. And she's like, "Well, Dave, like you're a little bit different because you're like you're just weird, like yeah, a little you, bit." And but and, that's part of being extraordinary is being weird, you know. So I, I was just trying so hard to understand that, and that's when I was like, "Fuck!" Like, yeah. Yeah, well, um, okay, I'm going to talk shit a little bit about that, you know, that fu- uh, video. That yeah, 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 yeah. You know? yep. Don't just talk shit. Okay, so I don't really care. I really don't care how much play white men get for cooking food that so many other people cook. Why is it important? Because when you become an authority, it can translate into economic viability. You know, and that's like when you don't, when you ignore people of color, immigrants making food, you're, you're denying them an opportunity for economic viability. So for me, like, I don't care about the fame. Give me money in the coffers, you know? Like, I'm very immigrant that way. Like, refugee. Like, I don't care about the fame. Who cares? I don't care about your fucking, like, Instagram followers. Like, uh, is there money in my bank? Okay. If I have a catastrophic event, can I take care of myself? You know? So I feel like that's, in the end, it's like, why is it important to have, to, to like, to acknowledge the work that people do? It's because it directly translates into uh, into viability and sustainability for them. And then, it, and, and also for me, it's, I, I love an improbable uh, menu, you mm-hmm. know? Like, yes. I was like, but you can't have that if, if you expect Vietnamese food to be in a box, if you expect Korean food, you you can never have the improbable because you always have to cater to a known quantity. Okay, let's just talk about Vietnamese people, right? Like Vietnamese people, we just don't it, take in culture and then directly reflect it back the same way as it fucking ever was. You know, we we can be auteurs. You know, we can like take in culture, process it, be able to re- be able to put something out that that is transformed through the processing. You know, so, yeah, anyway, not really shit talking, but like that guy was just like, if you're going to, if you're going to um, highlight a white guy making pho, I feel like he better have some kind of preternatural information to impart to me. Be the best fucking pho maker ever or something along those lines. You must. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's, that's all because, you know, and if I make, maybe feel really uncomfortable because I'm fair, you should be on it. I'm like, I don't give a shit, but it's just like, you're in Philadelphia. I'm sure like, why not right. next door? Like that, that's the more of the, my, my issue with it, like the representation stuff. So my, is, my issue, not the issue is this in everything that I'm trying to understand myself and learn myself mm-hmm. is again, casting judgment. If Bon App, I would be mad. Not I'm not going to be mad at something like this or any similar event if it if it doesn't happen again. If it continues to happen, then yeah, like now, like in 2018, if shit continues to happen, then like there's just no more excuse. Because it's just lazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am so I that, shouting? I feel like I'm shouting at you. No, <laughs> no. This is just like we're talking to my friends or my family. This is what we do. So that that's that's what it is. It's like I think so much of there's just so much more you need to be cognizant of. And unfortunately, the fact that 
you have to be aware of things that you should be aware of anyway is yeah. the problem. Yeah. And I'm just letting people do their thing and hopefully they learn from it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I life is way too long to like be resentful of stuff, you know, So, but it's more like um, you did it that way. Maybe next time do it this way. I feel like I do think like I have a feeling Bon Appetit understands yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know? the only reason I'm saying this is because I, that's not who I am as a person. I am immediately casting judgment. <laughs> and I mean, like, fuck you. I, you know, like, that's just like, I can't operate that way anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but. You got to stop being apoplectic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but good girl, Dinette, man. I, <clears throat> uh, if you haven't checked it out, you should. Uh, hopefully it's around for another 10 years. But you just want to run one restaurant? Do you want to do another? You have, you, you, you are flush with ideas. Um, you know, I think if, I feel like if it's another restaurant, it's just so that, uh, I could be more financially stable. Right. That's really, it, it, but the love of it, um. It's so fucking hard. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, I think of restaurants as horcruxes. And so if you, <laughs> like, if you have two, you divide yourself into two and you're never going to be as good. And soon you're going to have not have a nose, you know, like, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to do it. I, I don't, you know, I think uh, when But I that's s- the thing is anyone that says they know how to do it, they have no fucking idea. I feel true, like it's the people true. that don't know how to do it that say transparently, I don't know how to do it. They're the gamers, man. And they figure it out. And the fact that you've operated for 10 years, you can't fucking say you don't know how to do it anymore. But I know the feeling because I but feel I'm the same way. I'm old too. I'm old too. Like my, like. Your body. Yeah. It's not the same. I used to work 16 hours and I, you know, like. Not loving it, but like, okay, but like, <laughs> now like my knees creak and it's like, you know, I'm afraid of like, you know, like, oh, that's a little step there. I'm going to twist my ankle. Like, I'm like much more afraid now, you know, than, How much, I mean, than it was. Is there any advice to give to someone that's trying to open up their own business in the restaurant business to tell them like, yeah, you, you will have the artistic freedom and, and the business uh, freedom to do what you want, but you're going to sacrifice a lot. And you and my concern with our business and mm-hmm. someone like yourself that's a successful business operator, there are too many chefs and restaurant owners that have sacrificed so much to not ensure a future. I'm right there. I don't have any uh, advice. <laughs> right, and, 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 and <laughs> you know, I don't. And uh, that's that's something that I genuinely want to figure out how to we make sure that doesn't happen anymore. And I don't know how. I don't know. You can because okay, remember when when you tried to first open your first restaurant. How many people told you not to do it? Every single person. And did you follow that? Well, no, because I was on like a fucking death wish, you know? Like, I, I was like, I don't give I a fuck. I think most entrepreneurs yeah. like, have a little bit of a death <laughs> yeah. wish. Like, like, no one can dissuade. Like, I always, this is the advice I give people when like, should I, should I open a restaurant? Then you should not. If you have to ask me, you should open a restaurant, you should not. Because the first time the toilet clogs, it's over for you. You know, the first time like, you know, like anything busts. Like the water tank uh, is, is is fucked up. Is it like, worth it though? Do you think it was worth it after all these years? Mm. And quite frankly, let's today, just say today, Dave. Har- today, yes. Tomorrow, I'm not so sure. You know. But but so many people don't understand. It's like, hey, let's just say let let's just say you find a partner and you want you can open up two to three more. I would never open a partner because I don't. I can't. I don't know how to be in a partnership. I don't. I mean, that's like. Yeah, that's a skill I don't have. <laughs> and I don't wish to, um, yeah. Maybe you know, maybe now, but when I was younger, I felt like um, 
an equal partnership was me doing 80% and the person doing 20 and they get 50% of the cut. Because I just, it's just like my own sense of entitlement. Right. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't possessed of myself in a particular way. So I wouldn't know how to be in a partnership where you say, no, that's not fair. I could never say that that's not fair to me, you know, until it's like completely untenable, you know. Maybe now I'm different, you know, and I've made some sacrifices by not having a partner. I'm completely undercapitalized, you know, like, uh, like when something breaks, I'm like shitting bricks, you know. So, um, but I think like, is it worth it? You have to define what's worth it to you. Like, is it… an experiment and like, can I pay above minimum wage? Can I, and can it be at this price point? Can it be in a neighborhood that's working class? You know, all that stuff. And you've constantly me, given you know? back, right? You've given back and it's yeah. almost like you've dedicated your life to service almost. I run like a nonprofit. <laughs> right. But, but what I'm asking you, cause I essentially am projecting myself onto you is like, yeah. when do you take care of yourself? I don't. That's but, the truth. But that's what I'm trying to ask is like, how fucking stupid is that? It's completely stupid. But, uh, you know, I, you know I, I'm i going through that right now. Just like, um, <clears throat> okay, so I really think I've survived. I don't want to see where I thrive. Actually, let me, I am not thriving. You know, like <laughs> I'm surviving. And that is, its, uh, that is its own success for sure. But how do I move forward with an aging body? I really think that when I was 30, I thought I could do this forever. Like, but feeling my, 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 my aging body does kind of change stuff for me a little bit. But um, because of my experience working in my family's restaurants and seeing people work minimum wage and sometimes sub-minimum wage, you know, mm-hmm. just day in, day out, I think it just impacted me. Like, I can't not divorce myself of what the lives of my staff are. You know, it's not, per- it's not, it's not paternalistic, you know, because I tell myself, like, we're not a family. We're a business, meaning that, you know, you don't have to take emotion. You don't have to do emotional labor for me. You know, I, I'm going to pay you a certain amount. You do a great job. And that way, I feel like that's—I don't try to ask them for more than what is proper— you know, in my in my eyes. In some ways, I think maybe the restaurant business is not for me because I'm all, like, every time I give a paycheck, I get depressed. Because how do you live off of that? Right. You know, and I pay above minimum wage right. and still it's like, you're just like one, one accident away from financial um, disaster. You're, you're, one, you're, you're one diagnosis away, yep. you know? So I don't know, you know. I know. And I'm I, trying I, to bum you out, you no, know? No, you're not bumming me out. I, <laughs> And I'm not trying to rationalize. For me, what I wrestle with is maybe the only way to do it is through scale and to take— that's the only way you can take care of people. Yeah, but I think you have the personality for it. I do not have the personality for it. I don't know. I don't think I have the personality for that. <laughs> Well, you're doing it. You're doing it, Dave. So, you know. Um, yeah. I will—everyone uh, should uh, go visit uh, Highland Park and the great restaurant Good Girl Dinette. Uh, deep. Uh, I feel like we could talk for hours, and I hope to have you on as a guest many times and a travel companion. We've got to do All this right. trip. All right. I would love that. Um, I think the world of you, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Dave. I right. think the world of you as well. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of The Dave Chang Show with Deep Tran. Thanks again to Deep for coming on the show. And if you like the show, do us a favor and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Give us five stars, please. I want to make Bill Simmons happy. I'll be back next Thursday with a special guest. Stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. Here's Yola Tango.